crazy episode about the Steve Martin episode of The Muppet Show. Welcome back, everyone. Glad you're here with us. I'm David Levy, and with me today are... Michal Richardson, Christy Bauer, and Adam Grossworth. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. We do have a couple of corrections to our bonus episode on Muppets Haunted Mansion. Uh, a listener told us that Dave Goals was not, in fact, puppeteering Gonzo on that, but only doing the voice. We couldn't actually verify that anywhere, but it seems plausible. I The whole reason I asked that question was that I had it in my head that that's actually been true for a while, but we couldn't verify that either. So we just thought we'd mention it and say that we couldn't verify it. However, uh, David found some amazing other facts about Dave Goals' connection to Disney. So first of all, I... I I think Dave Goals does talk about how he was adapting during COVID on his appearance on the Tough Pigs podcast to introduce our guest star. I just haven't had a chance to re-listen to it to verify if he talks about that specifically. So it's a great interview. You should go listen to that. And maybe that will correct our correction. Anyway, Dave Goals has been affiliated with Disney since 1961 when he appeared as an extra in The Parent Trap. We also learned that... He is a voice in the Pixar movie Inside Out, and he is the voice of Figment at Epcot. He's not the original voice. That was Billy Barty. But when they redid the ride and needed to re-record new things for Figment, it became Dave Goals. I thought that was interesting. I did, too. We are here this week to talk about the Steve Martin episode of The Muppet Show. It's season two, episode eight. It was produced the week of July 19th, 1977, and it aired in New York on October 31st. Hey, Halloween, 1977. Not a Halloween episode at all. That means it was the seventh episode to air in New York. Weirdly, not a lot of Halloween content on TV that night. They seem to have done that like two weeks early in 77. Well, because people were out trick-or-treating. Sure, sure. Elsewhere in syndication that night was an episode of In Search Of, In Search of Haunted Castles. That's Halloween-y. And I am now just fascinated by the NBC Monday Night Movie, and I'm going to look it up every week. This week's is Sharon, Portrait of a Mistress. The tagline, she could only love a man who loved his wife. And the TV listing description is a woman habitually drawn to married men. No, I will not be watching it. Introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you Steve Martin, comedian, banjo player, writer, actor, and more. So I think Steve Martin is the first guest star we've encountered on the show who is arguably just as famous in 2021 as he was in 1977. So I'm not going to go as deep into his resume as we do most weeks. That said, he's got a pretty interesting and varied career, so this is not necessarily going to be much shorter than normal. Born August 14th, 1945 in Waco, Texas, Steve grew up in Southern California, and he had his first job at age 10 selling guidebooks at Disneyland. He liked to hang out at the Main Street Magic Shop, and by the time he turned 15, he got good enough at the tricks that they sold there that he could start working the counter at the Fantasyland Magic Shop, where his knack for performing was nurtured as part of the gig. By the time he was in college, he was doing theater and performing as part of a comedy troupe at Knott's Berry Farm. In 1967, he transferred to UCLA and became a theater major. He started doing his comedy act on the nightclub circuit, and by 21, he dropped out to pursue comedy full-time. In 1967, he got his first TV gig as a writer on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, and in 1969, he won his first of many Emmy Awards as part of the writing staff there. 
He continued to work as a television writer for a variety of shows, mostly variety shows, while pursuing his stand-up work. He was a frequent guest on The Tonight Show and Saturday Night Live, where he holds the title of second most frequent guest host behind Alec Baldwin. I know a lot of people just assume Steve Martin had been a regular cast member of the show because he created so many classic bits there, especially in the 70s and 80s. This is where his career was at the time he appeared on The Muppet Show in 1977. That same year, he released his first comedy album called Let's Get Small, which went platinum and peaked at number 10 on the Billboard Pop Albums chart and won Grammy for Best Comedy Album in 1978, his first of many Grammy Awards. And according to Wikipedia, by the end of the 70s, his comedy act was playing arenas to the kinds of crowds usually reserved for the biggest rock acts. The following year, he would make his first substantial appearance in a feature film, performing Maxwell's Silver Hammer in the film adaptation of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And if I may digress for a moment, this is one of my all-time favorite terrible movies, It is an absolute disaster of a schlock opera starring Peter Frampton as Sgt. Pepper and the Bee Gees as his Lonely Hearts Club Band, with guest appearances from everyone from George Burns to Alice Cooper and even some celebrities who weren't on The Muppet Show. It's hot garbage. I love every minute of it. And if you haven't seen it, please schedule it now for your next movie night. Cosign. It's absolutely bonkers. Is it streaming? Is it readily available? Uh, It's definitely rentable on streaming. I'm not sure if it's like included in any of the streaming services. Gotcha. In 1979, Steve Martin starred in the film The Jerk, which he also co-wrote, and a box office star was born. His co-star in the movie was fellow Muppet Show guest star Bernadette Peters, who is both his girlfriend and frequent collaborator in the era. For those wondering, yes, this is a super racist movie. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I made it 10 minutes into The Jerk. Yeah, and what's funny is that that comedy album that I mentioned has the joke that gave birth to the jerk. But I'm not going to repeat it because it's kind of super racist. It's really early there. in the movie if you want to see it yeah. yourself. You don't have to watch very much of it. It is not a movie that we made today. No. Throughout the 80s, Steve Martin starred in a series of movie comedies, eventually branching out to more serious fare as well. Uh, we should probably mention his memorable cameo in The Muppet Movie as the waiter who serves Kermit and Piggy on their first date. And he had... Among his film appearances, two directed by Frank Oz, Little Shop of Horrors and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. There's a third one in the 90s, House Sitter with Goldie Hawn. Oh, right. My mother would be furious if we didn't mention that. It's one of her favorite movies. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> Christy's mom. Uh, in 1988, he came to Broadway, where he starred with Bill Irwin, who you might know as Sesame Street's Mr. Noodle, in a revival of Waiting for Godot, directed by Mike Nichols. I love that all of those names are in the same sentence. That's wonderful. (laughs) Steve Martin's film career continued to soar through the 90s and the aughts. In the 90s, he also branched out into writing for the stage, for The New Yorker, and for novellas. And although the banjo had been part of Steve's act since the beginning, it wasn't until 2009 that he released his first all-music album, The Crow, New Songs for Five-String Banjo, which earned him another Grammy for Best Bluegrass Album. In 2016, he collaborated with Edie Brickell to write the Broadway musical Bright Star. Boy, did he. (laughs) <laughs> we could also talk about the uh, i don't even have the words to describe my feelings for bright star it is one of those things that needs to be seen to be believed baby train uh, but it has some great songs it, it has really great songs these days you can catch him on the hulu series only murders in the building and there's a lot more to his resume and to his life but i've rambled on long enough and you all have access to wikipedia Does anyone else have some steve martin memories they want to share i see what you did there I grew up in a Steve Martin house. Uh, The only comedy album I remember my parents owning uh, was a Steve Martin album. So 
as far as important people uh, in my memory appearing on The Muppet Show so far. He's the biggest. I was listening to Let's Get Small to prep for this podcast, and I realized that it is absolutely something that my uncles used to quote at me before I knew what the references were, just as like they would tell jokes, but they were actually like ripping off Steve Martin jokes. And I think that's just like they're of that generation. And so like it it was just so omnipresent in the way that people of our generation might have just like spoken in Adam Sandler quotes in the nineties, you know, or John Mulaney quotes. Now yeah. John Mulaney feels sort of analogous kind of sort of. Yeah. I feel like like my, my Steve Martin period was later than, than this Muppet show episode. I have very fond Steve Martin memories like of little shop and Roxanne and dirty rotten scoundrels and, and like hosting the Oscars. Um, I'm very much enjoying only murders in the building right now. Uh, it'll be over by the time this releases, but whatever. But like, I actually, I mean, we'll get into it more when we talk about the episode. I find him unbearable on this episode. I, I, as I said, like I, I fairly recently, before we started doing the podcast, so total coincidence, I tried to watch the jerk and I, like I turned it off in 10 minutes. Um, I recently watched pennies from heaven, which also stars Bernadette Peters. And it, like, it is a horrifically bad movie on multiple levels. Like it's offensively bad. I actually think that because Steve Martin is in it, we are meant to like his character who is not not okay as a human being <laughs> but like it's at a point in steve martin's fame where it's like oh this this is the steve martin character and it's it it's it's not okay that movie don't watch that movie um <laughs> but, like, don't don't do it so it it just it's interesting like this whole this whole persona even his cameo in the muppet movie like he's really mean to to kermit and piggy who also like you know are not going to tip that weight or anything. So like that sort of balances <laughs> out cuz they but like it's I don't know, it's it's interesting to watch him bring this persona to the Wampa show and I don't in, in a way that I don't care for. <laughs> Why don't you Michal, we've we've all just gassed on about Steve Martin. What did you think of the actual episode? <laughs> to continue what we were saying a moment ago, I have such pleasant associations with him now and to be reminded so abruptly that like, oh this was the character that he was doing in the 70s like this this was I, I forgot that this was the Steve Martin I was going to encounter I was picturing the you know pleasant kindly Steve Martin that I've been watching it only murders in the building and then we were hit over the head with this guy uh I I mean there's a lot that I love about the Muppety parts of this episode, all the Mary Louise and Terry Louise. And I laughed every time. And I love a, a singing food and a dancing cheese. And I, I kind of wish Steve Martin had just, uh, you know, showed up and played a banjo and not portrayed a guy who had to be a jerk about it. Like he, I like the conceit of this episode that, Oh, we had to do something drastically different because the show was canceled. Um, but then like, Steve Martin could have been less weird about it. Like he made it weird and then he kept doubling down and making it weirder and not in a fun Muppet show kind of weird, but you know, happy to see him play banjo and happy to hear some vegetables. Yeah. I, I agree with all of that. I, 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 I should say for any listeners who, who have not watched the episode because the, the structure of our podcast means we're actually not going to say what happened for a while that the, the, the whole structure of this episode is, is completely different. And I, and I love that about it. I love that they're playing with the format and it's, it, 
it gives it this looseness. And what I will say I really like about Steve Martin in this is is his interactions with the Muppets. I mean, not where he's being mean to them, but like he's hanging out with the Muppets in a way that is really cool and really fun um, when he's not being a dick. And I love that. And I love all of the like other stuff around that. I don't actually, I don't particularly like his performances, but I love the way that they're, that they're structured. I think that's really fun. Yeah. I would say almost exactly that. This is the first of what I like to think of as the concept episodes where the structure of the episode is upended because there's some sort of overall theme that that takes over the show and, and supersedes the regular structure of the Muppet Show. And this is not the most successful of them, but it's the first one, and that's okay. And I enjoy that. And uh, I definitely enjoy the looseness that that you were talking about, Adam, especially uh, in the parts where the Muppets are just kind of hanging out in the audience watching other acts. You really get the sense of the camaraderie among the Muppet performers as channeled through their characters. And and that was really cool to me. Christy. (sighs) Cocaine is a hell of a drug. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the thing. I I found out uh, Steve Martin was not on cocaine. I I actually, I came across an interview with Terry Gross where he said he had one bad experience with pot in the sixties and he was scared off drugs for life. So this was entirely a put on. Huh? But it definitely felt like chemical assistance would have, you know, assisted. And the thing is, is like, you know, I, I am uh, well-documented uh, as being a Steve Martin fan. You know, I enjoy polymath. I'm not going to apologize. But, uh, and I, I'm definitely on the record for enjoying high concept. I just sort of wish that we could have gotten better content within the execution of the concept. Like, I laughed a lot, but it just didn't add up to much. Like, it sort of felt like a very fancy wardrobe full of the hangers. This is the first episode where I really missed having commercials and maybe it's because there's one moment where it's very clear where the commercial break should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like the pacing of this episode really depended on having those commercial breaks. And without them, it's just a little bit of an exhausting race to the end. Mm-hmm. Kind of the same thing for 27 minutes. Yeah. Yep. 15 seconds till curtain, Mr. Martin. Thank you, Scooter. I'm almost ready. So uh, appropriately enough, Scooter finds Steve Martin with an arrow through his head and preparing for the show by leaping around and making faces. Scooter observes that he'll feel right at home. As far as Kermit's yay evolution, no news tonight. It's uh, the same open mouth nodding thing. I do like the Statler and Waldorf opening clip. I like the old opening better. <laughs> I like, Me I like too. Commentary. <laughs> I mean, we love the new theme, but I've, I'm glad that Statler and Waldorf have given it some thought. Gonzo's trumpet blows some green smoke. Gonzo comments on this by observing green smoke. It looks gorgeous in HD. It, it does. does look really good in HD. I found it really weird that Gonzo commented on it. <laughs> like, we, we, yes, we know. We got it. Why are you explaining the joke to us? It's cute the way he said it. Yeah. Is there a Muppet Pope being chosen somewhere? Yeah, Muppet Joe backstage. So, backstage, today's backstage plot is canceled, or rather, Kermit has an announcement. Uh, tonight's show has been canceled. <laughs> Have I died and gone to heaven? Uh, Well, you see, I just realized I misread my calendar. Uh, Tonight, we're scheduled to audition new acts for the show, so I'm really sorry, but there will not be a Muppet show tonight. Uh, You can all stay and watch the auditions, but of course, I'm not sure there'll be anything very exciting. When has there ever been? (laughs) Uh, Okay, you two, take the night off. 
it makes for a fun conceit for an episode for all the Muppets to be sitting in the audience, as we've discussed. And I guess it is admirable that Kermit is just kind of able to roll with things. But the way that he rolls with things is really stressful to me, probably also to you guys. I'd be a lot less stressed if they had just written it as Kermit having invited Steve Martin on the wrong day, not having to dismiss the entire audience. There is a lot that he could have done differently. Wouldn't it make more sense to send the auditioners home and do the show? Right. Or to let the audience stay and, well, refund them their ticket money, except, uh... Well, should we stay or go? I feel the same as I do every week. I've paid good money for this ticket, and I'm going to use it. Uh, The tickets are free. Oh, yes. uh, Well, then overpriced at that, too. (laughs) The tickets are what? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no wonder they have budget problems. I mean, maybe just Statler and Waldorf for comp, but I, that's not the implication. Yeah. Sorry to disappoint the audience. There no, because later on in the show, Steve Martin says how much did it cost, and Fozzie says it's free. Well, yeah, but they all... Well, it was free for the Muppets there. to get. I yeah, mean... That's that's different. But I... Uh, I, uh, I mean, and Fozzie gets paid nothing, we've learned. So this is, I guess, just a volunteer operation. I don't know. It's maddening. Maddening. <laughs> This did, however, answer a question that we've posed earlier on this podcast in earlier episodes, which is whether or not The Muppet Show is just an open mic night. And clearly it's not if there are auditions happening now, and that's not the usual thing that happens. Right. And it seems to be some kind of required open call because Kermit has no intention of casting anybody. Right. And I mean, the the way that this is operating is a mystery to everybody except Kermit, because the whole episode, Fozzie is terrified that Kermit is going to find somebody who's funnier than he is. And it's not until 21 minutes into this episode that Kermit reassures everyone that they're not going to lose their jobs. And for the rest of the time, they're just sweating. Kermit sucks, dude. <laughs> it's rough. <laughs> when On our Zero Mistel episode, our guest Ben Lieber said something about seeing the house better in this episode. And um, I'm so sorry to correct you, Ben, but I don't think that there's a balcony. It's very dark up there. I think it's just a lighting rail. If there's seating up there, there's no one sitting in it. What house would have boxes, but not a balcony? That is a fair point. At any rate, they don't seem to be using it. If they're using it, it's not up to code. It has no house lights. They can't give those tickets away. Although now that I think about it, the Muppet Vision 3D Theater has... Uh, uh, I was just about to say Uh, that. uh, (laughs) (laughs) So maybe it's a a Muppet convention. We are now a Disney Parks podcast, everybody. I'm so sorry. Come back next week when we discuss Muppet Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse. (laughs) 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 That'd be great. What a great idea. Anyway. Kermit also, uh, after he apologizes to the audience and then tells them to go home, he apologizes to Steve Martin, uh, who pretends for a minute to be a good sport about it, but also... He keeps showing up on stage for the rest of the episode, presumably with some kind of simmering resentment because he does this passive aggressive thing. Or um, maybe, I I don't know if that's how they wrote it or if that's how he just wanted to play it because that was his arena filling deal at the time. He doesn't really even pretend to be a good sport about it, I would argue. Well, I mean, he says that it's fine, but you can tell that it's not fine. Well, you know, it's just it's just a thing that uh, I'm sitting back there getting ready. Uh, and, 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 you know, I feel like some kind of sap back there putting these clothes on for the big number. And uh, no one comes back and bothers to say, hey, Steve, the show has been canceled. What am I around here? Nothing. <laughs> uh, Steve, I, I don't know what to say. Well, I do. 
Excuse me! <laughs> That's a little bit redeemed because he takes off a little shower cap that he's been wearing, and Steve Martin puts his little shower cap on Kermit's entire head, which is pretty cute. I will say, as, as much as I don't like Steve Martin being a dick, he's right. <laughs> like, no one even told him the show was canceled? Yeah, he just heard through the grapevine. That's on Scooter. Yes. But he's still right to be mad at the show and the management of the show. Yeah. It's not great, this whole situation. Yeah. We do get to see some old friends in the audience as the audience leaves. <laughs> yeah, we've uh, we've spotted a few Cleveland Muppets in this episode. The Mildred was leaving and George and Droop are in there, right? George and Droop stick around. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we're going to see them watching the show. Yeah, they're there as part of the troupe. A note from the Muppet Wiki, since the laughter in this episode comes from the cast of the Muppet Show sitting in the audience and watching the auditions, the laughter here is from the Muppet performers rather than from a laugh track. Although we're told by Muppet Wiki that apparently Richard Hunt's laugh was so loud that they needed to rely on some canned laughter after all. Yeah, you can kind of tell like the real laughter has been like lightly sweetened. There's like a, a bit where it's pretty isolated and I clipped it. <laughs> and I find it very creepy. <laughs> it is a, a bit menacing. Okay, as bad as the laugh track can be, we understand normally, even though it sometimes is happening backstage or in a dressing room, there is an audience for the Muppet Show. Like we understand if we're watching a sitcom or whatever, right? There's a studio audience. It's a, it's a little play happening and like... It's a convention of the it's form. It's a convention of the form and they are laughing at... They are an audience laughing at the thing that we are watching. With them gone, who the fuck is this? <laughs> because it's not the Muppets. Like, we see the Muppets, and we hear these other disembodied voices laughing. And I find it very, very strange and creepy. Like, Even though we've established that this is a TV show and it's a TV audience laughing? Yeah, because the, the TV audience laughing doesn't sound like that. It sounds... Like, like the ominous laughter. The laugh track. <laughs> this did not bother me. I think this is this is a problem that like you're making up for yourself. <laughs> Hi. How many episodes of this podcast have you done? <laughs> it seemed like the right choice for this episode. It didn't bother me. Yeah, I, I get it. Also, who is Kermit talking to? Like Kermit still is addressing the camera, <laughs> despite there being no audience. I found it very weird. <laughs> As you might have guessed with this being an audition-centric episode, we got a lot of music this week. (laughs) Um, Some of it very, very quickly. We won't spend too much time on the more famous pieces, but we'll we'll throw out some fun facts for you. The first piece that we get is a dance performance. You know the rest. Yeah, <laughs> you, you get the idea. So this is a performance by uh, an audition performance, I should say, by the Lautrec sisters, who are a bunch of can-can dancing, sorry, garbage can-can dancing rats, Muppet rats. But they don't look like the Muppet rats that we come to know 
later. Know. They're like so a prototype. Much. Yeah. Oh, but their little like dresses are so cute. <laughs> yes, but their little eyes are so creepy. Yeah. They, they look very prototypey. Yeah, that's I'm not a fan. They don't really move. Like they're on sticks and they don't really do anything and they're very they look very um dead to me and I I don't like them. It makes you miss Miss Mousy. <laughs> it does actually. So the piece of music is the most famous piece of can-can music there is. Uh, it is a piece of music called Gallop Infernal from uh, the opera Orpheus in the Underworld uh, by Jacques Offenbach from 1858. Shout out to the public domain. And yeah, all the Lautrec sisters, I mean, that's a reference to Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, the French painter who painted can-can dancers, among other aspects of colorful nightlife in late 19th century Paris. All of this should be really familiar to you if you're a fan of Moulin Rouge. It's really weird to think of this piece of music and a can-can associated with the story of Orpheus, despite that, in fact, being what Moulin Rouge is based on. But you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's weird. Wait, Moulin Rouge is based on the story of Orpheus? Yeah. He literally looks back. Well, not the play, because they screwed up the ending, but he literally looks back at the end. Uh, I just hate that movie so much, none of it huh. stuck uh, with me. but. How okay. about that? Well, it's weird that we're friends. Um, <laughs> it was the 90s and I was busy crying the whole time. Yeah, exactly. It was the 2000s. <laughs> it, was the, it was the early it was 2000s. 2000s. It was I was close. busy having a lot of feelings. So in the 70s and 80s, there was a supermarket chain called ShopRite. I don't know how local or national this was, um, but they periodically would have a sale on all of their canned goods. <laughs> I don't know how this was a good idea, but they would run a commercial. I did not clip it, but it'll be in the show notes with like using this music. Now, ShopRite does the can-can selling lots of brands of everything in cans. Did you know it too, or did you just Google it? I Googled it. Okay. (laughs) Well, you can carry a tune, and I cannot, so that was a better choice. So, we have a running gag amongst the auditions. Our old friend Mary Louise and friend, as they're introduced, returned several times. It's... uh, they're a, a girl and frog duo, and uh, they continually get get the hook. Way down upon the Ribbit. <laughs> this happens three times with three different songs, and we'll, we'll talk about all, all three of them, but. This first one uh, is a Stephen Foster song from 1851 that people tend to call Swanee or Swanee River, but the actual title of it is Old Folks at Home, and it's a minstrel song. And it's worth pointing out that two of the three songs that she does uh, use uh, like racist dialect. So that's a choice. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Old Folks at Home, remarkably to this day, is the state song of Florida. <laughs> Florida, really? really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the the actual river, the Suwanee, flows from Georgia to Florida, hmm. and it is home to old folks. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I find funny about the song is that Stephen Foster had never been to this river. He found it by opening a map and randomly pointing his finger until he landed on something with two syllables that he liked, or with three syllables and removing one of them. <laughs> yeah, it's one way to yeah. write a song. Stephen Foster also wrote uh, "My Old Kentucky Home," which is my home state's state song. Also has some really problematic racist lyrics, so that's fun. What? Not Kentucky? <laughs> Surely, yes. <laughs> but I, I did discover that uh, he died with thirty-eight cents and a scribbled lyric fragment to his name at the age of thirty-seven. So, it's a thirty-seven-year-old songwriter. I found that chilling. Wowzers! 
Yeah. You have a puppy, so you're already ahead. It's true. It's true. I, I do have a puppy, if nothing else. Later, Mary Louise and friend come back as Terry Louise and friend and sing something uh, not racist. Tie yellow. Ribbit. I know that both the ribbit and the hook are coming every time, and they both make me laugh every time. Yeah, good bit. So this is our our first song from the 20th century in this episode. It's exciting. This was a a recent hit at this point. This this was Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree, which was a number one hit for Tony Orlando and Dawn in 1973. And it was number one for four weeks in the US and the UK. It was the top selling single of 1973 in both countries. Which is so weird because it it just it sounds like a song from the 40s. Yeah, that's yeah. what I always thought this song I thought this was a World War II song. Yeah, it has associations to uh old like war traditions with like sweethearts w- wearing yellow ribbons to uh signify that they have a husband or uh boyfriend off of, off in the war. And uh, it's funny I I didn't know prior to the nineties that that was like a real tradition. But when the Gulf war broke out, at least in my mm-hmm. part of the world, Massachusetts, like people started tying yellow ribbons around trees yep. uh, and they were everywhere. Uh, and I was like, Oh, I guess we're being real literal about this. Yeah. That was my first association with the song too, is uh, I thought it was a tree thing, but no, no, it, it started out as just wearing a yellow ribbon and somehow trees got involved <laughs> as they tend to do. <laughs> The, the song uh, was uh, written by Erwin Levine and L. Russell Brown, who are a songwriting team who wrote most of Tony Orlando and Don's big hits. They also wrote Knock Three Times, which was another number one for them. And they wrote Come On, Marianne for the Four Seasons, and I Woke Up in Love This Morning for the Partridge Family. So also worth noting, this song and the next song were both recorded by noted Joe Raposo, Stan, Frank Sinatra. So for... Particularly younger listeners who may not be familiar with Tony Orlando and Don, we should probably say that Don is not a person, but actually two people. Uh, Don is Tony Orlando's backup group of two women. Yes. And uh, I was lucky enough to see Tony Orlando because he still tours. He does the condo circuit, which if you do not have elderly parents or grandparents who live in Florida, you may not be aware that there is such a thing as the condo circuit. But it is the closest thing to a vaudeville circuit we have today where (laughs) – Literally acts, some of whom are sort of like the hits of yesteryear, like Tony Orlando or Shanana, some of whom are, are like uh, up and comers, some of whom are like the kind of people that you might pay $200 to see in a New York cabaret. You can see for $15 at the clubhouse of your gated retirement community in Florida. And these acts basically as a way to like make some extra money and also avoid the cold winter months they go and they just tour from retirement community to retirement community uh, performing at these clubhouses. And it's, it's hilarious, but this it's, you know, they put on legitimate shows and they're great. And you know, it's a, it's just, it's such a bizarre phenomenon, but like, you know, if you live in Florida and you want to go see Marilyn McCoo, like make friends with someone who lives in a over 55 gated community. (laughs) Yeah. Where do they perform? Like in the so like they have clubhouses, and each of the clubhouses has a theater. Okay, you know it's kind of like a high school auditorium right, style right. theater. Yeah, it's not like a treehouse. The clubhouse. Yeah, no, I got, like. I got it. I got it. I got it. Yeah, Tony Orlando is big with uh, old people and big with Republicans. There's actually a wild story about him dancing with Betty Ford at the 1976 Republican National Convention, 
And apparently uh, this happened as Nancy Reagan was supposed to be making her entrance and they were accused of trying to upstage her because uh, Ronald Reagan was trying to challenge for the nomination at that point. Anyway, also, apparently, Tony Orlando, as of last year, hosts an oldies show on conservative talk radio in New York. (laughs) It's like it switches from uh, talk radio to him playing the hits of yesteryear. But yesteryear is the 70s, and that's really upsetting. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yesteryear is arguably the 90s, so. Right. I don't want to hear it. Sorry. I don't want to know about it. Let's move on. If they're playing Nirvana on oldie stations, like, <laughs> I don't think Tony Orlando is playing Nirvana. Quick, let's talk about Showboat. <laughs> Old man. Ribbit. <laughs> I keep telling you, I'm the girl singer on this show. Move it, move it. Who do you think was laughing there? They were very entertained. I hope it was Richard Hunt. I hope that was the <laughs> outrageous laugh that had to be covered. Yeah, so the song is Old Man River from Showboat, which is, this is the second Showboat song that we've had to appear on the show. Uh, Piggy sang a snatch of Can't Help Love and That Man in the Mum and Shans episode in season one. Uh, also, uh, she apparently performed Can't Help Love and That Man in the Disney MGM Studios live show Muppets on Location, Days of Swine and Roses. I'm very sad that I never saw that show. Yeah, that sounds amazing. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, Showboat uh, from 1927, and it's Jerome Kern on music. Oscar Hammerstein II wrote the lyrics. And I've noticed that uh, Jerome Kern in particular gets a lot of play on this show, second only to maybe Johnny Mercer. Well, he was like the most popular songwriter of the first half of the 20th century. I mean, this is true. He wrote the music for Who, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, Pick Yourself Up. So like a lot of stuff that we've heard recently, too. Yeah. And so when we mentioned Frank Sinatra recording this song, he actually did it more than once, but perhaps most famously in the Jerome Kern biopic, Till the Clouds Roll By, there's this moment where you get the big like fanfare and then suddenly there's like an all white set with a gleaming white staircase and the whitest white man, Frank Sinatra, emerges wearing a white tuxedo and opens his mouth and sings Old Man River. It's just one of the most embarrassing moments in motion picture history. (laughs) He sings it well, for what it's worth, but it's not how the song should be sung. Certainly not how it should be staged. It's funny that the little white presenting Muppet girl, I don't actually know what color she is, sings it with a frog. She's pink. Yeah, yeah, she's, she's not actually you know, human skin colored, but it's not, that's not, it's not supposed to be sung by a white human. It's not okay. Yeah. I have a lot of questions about these song choices and about Mary Louise in general. (laughs) Well, especially given her history as a social justice activist with her song, I'm in love with a big blue frog. (laughs) Right. I mean, they needed things that would work with the ribbit. Yeah. Maybe it's performance, right? And, and, you know, Billy Joel's ribbit of dreams had not been written yet. So, nor what? nor had Carly Simon's Let the Ribbit Run. I could do this all night. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> you do wonder, in retrospect, if Never Smile at a Crocodile was sort of a NIMBY song for her. <laughs> Yikes. In the context of a running gag, this works so beautifully. I love Wh- it. Whether or not Mary Louise should be singing Old Man River, it is very funny. This And the cane the third time around it just hovers there for an extra second. So you know it's there and she knows it's there and everybody knows it's coming. And she keeps singing 
just for an extra split second until she gets yoinked off stage. Oh, it's wonderful. And the payoff that we actually get to see who's operating the cane and it's Miss Piggy who threatens her because there's only room for one girl singer on this show is just delicious. And is so delicious that that will be a, a gag that comes back in season three. Yeah. And the cane itself is actually a running gag that we'll come back. We'll get to it in a minute. The, actually, before she even starts it, right. Cause she's, it's, you know, she keeps coming back with a different name. Like she's really trying to get around Miss Piggy. And before she even starts this third one, she's shaking like she's she's afraid to even start, and then the cane happens, and she knows it's coming. It's it's so well constructed the whole bit. It's a good time. So the Fazoobs uh, from Coosbane perform a musical number, s- sort of. We didn't clip it because it's hard to clip, but it's more a collection of noises than a song. Um, it's kind of sounds like the kind of music. Well, judge much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just calling very culturally insensitive to the people of Coosbane. <laughs> to the Fazoobs of Coosbane. I, I, I apologize to the Fazoobs. It, it, it sounds to me like the kind of music that you only hear on NPR in the middle of the night. Is that your puppy or is somebody making the Fazoobs song? That's, that's, that's the puppy. <laughs> oh, man. I, w- I would love to listen to four puppies doing this Fazoob act. So in the sketch, there are four fuzzy little Coosbanian creatures and they're all performing little sounds and one is hitting itself on the head on its little bald patch on top of its head and one is squawking like a bird one is playing its nose like a trumpet and one is grunting and they all do their little thing individually and then they all form a little line and march around the stage making their sounds it's it's fun and weird and muppety i don't know whether we we call it a musical number or not i i agree with that assessment I think it's important to point out that they play each other and it's when it's one of them, like tapping on the other one's head to play a drum. That's one thing, but the trumpet guy whose nose looks like a trumpet has basically a tube coming out of the back of his head, like something from avatar that the, the drum guy sticks in his mouth to blow into to play the trumpet guy. It is very upsetting. (laughs) Another surprisingly intimate moment between Muppets. Between Kuzbanians, specifically. We're learning a lot about them. We have a delightful performance by Staller and Waldorf. Don't we have some good old-fashioned entertainment? Uh, Scooter, I can only vouch for the old part. Who you got? Statler and Waldorf. What? Up on the toes, that's the way to do the varsity drag. Hotter than hot, newer than new, greener than mean, bluer than blue, gets as much applause as waving the flag. So this is a, an old-fashioned straw hat and, and cane number, which pleases Sam the Eagle to no end, because so far he is very unimpressed with these auditions. <laughs> And it's it's uh, an older song uh, called The Varsity Drag from 1927, music by Ray Henderson, lyrics by Buddy DeSilva and Lou Brown from a musical called Good News, which premiered at the Chanin's 46th Street Theater, which is now the Richard Rogers Theater, home of mm. Hamilton. And yeah, it's delightful. I sort of wish we could get Statler and Waldorf numbers on the reg. So what's interesting about the way this is performed is that we get full body Statler and Waldorf puppets where it's the kind of puppetry where you have people in black standing behind them operating their feet and arms on poles i think or maybe perhaps 
the feet might be affixed to their feet. So we get real tap dancing or something that looks more like real tap dancing than we've seen on the Muppet shows so far, I think. It didn't entirely work for me because Stotler's arms were kind of weirdly long. And and I, I still have this thing about Muppet legs, especially in this era of the Muppets. But I, I like that it was a different approach to Muppet dancing. And it's interesting to compare this to a more famous Muppet tap dance number, Happy Feet, which we'll talk about uh, next week in the Madeline Kahn episode. I enjoyed their little feet and their little candy striped jackets. And I, I'm just endlessly delighted by this. I, I don't mind that the proportions are a little off. I want to see Statler and Waldorf dance all the time. Yeah, this is like the second or third time that I've seen a number from the sort of vaudeville era where the costuming was pink on red. And I'm wondering if th- that was a popular color combination in the teens and 20s. Uh, it, it always strikes me as odd. Or in the 70s. Also possible. But it's the only place I ever see it is in 70s performances of uh, hmm. old timey vaudeville numbers. Speaking of old timey, we have probably my favorite thing in the entire episode. <laughs> we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. Oh, I love my vegetables. How are you, cabbage? Oh, getting ahead. <laughs> How's the artichoke? Singing my heart out. <laughs> oh, what's this wrong, asparagus? I feel naked without my hollandaise. Come on, tomato, you're slow. I'll catch up. I love this so much. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, We Have No Bananas uh, is a novelty song from the early 20s uh, by Frank Silver and Irving Cohn. This was their big claim to fame. And it has a huge cultural footprint. It uh, has different importances to different cultures at different times. Uh, It was part of uh, the 1932 protests in Northern Ireland. Uh, Interestingly, it was like the one thing that the Protestants and the Catholics could like bond over because it was like, it was a secular thing that they all knew. (laughs) And uh, it was also very popular in World War II uh, during the rationing in the UK. And it went into the public domain in 2019. So yet another shout out to the public domain. A lot of public domain songs in this week's episode. And uh, I I found a funny thing. So an American musicologist named Sigmund Spaeth uh, wrote a column about this where he he suggested that the entire melody of the song was derived from various parts of other songs, including the Hallelujah Chorus uh, by Handel, uh, My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean, uh, I dreamt I d- dwelt in marble halls, Aunt Dinah's quilting party, Cole Porter's an old-fashioned garden. And, like, for example, like, the <laughs> he pieced together all of the lyrics from these various things, throwing in bananas, and you realize, like, oh, like, hallelujah, bananas, oh, bring back my Bonnie to me. <laughs> but, yeah, it's Marvin Suggs, and not the Muppaphone, so there, there's nobody's getting bonked on the head this week. It's Marvin Suggs and a bunch of food. <laughs> singing food the best yes i freaking love the singing food there's especially the jerry nelson's scallions like there's something about that puppet especially that just feels so it's the perfect piece of muppetdom and i can't explain why exactly but my facebook profile is me surrounded by singing muppet vegetables that a friend photoshopped for me 
at this point, multiple decades ago, but it's been my profile since 2006 when I joined Facebook, because how could I ever top that photo? I can't. Sorry if you know, if you want to know what I look like now. (laughs) (laughs) A really weird comment about the scallions. I was making dinner last week that happened to involve bok choy. And I looked at it and I went, this looks like a Muppet. (laughs) Which is really weird because of the way nobody in America would have been cooking with bok choy in the 70s. And then watching this episode tonight, I I realized, oh, wait, those are scallions. Because they are the biggest scallions in the world, which, of course, they would have to be to be able to fit a human hand inside. (laughs) But, like, it's like like the bottom, like the root, the white part of the scallions actually looks like bok choy. I'm not complaining. I love the scallions very much. But they are enormous. The bok choy, or did you only hear it screaming, don't eat me? No, I cut it and I cooked it and I ate it. But it didn't have a face. It didn't actually <laughs> look like a Muppet. It was just, they're just, they're enormous. And I didn't care for the song it was singing. <laughs> enormous. <laughs> they had no talent whatsoever. Didn't uh, sing at all. Try again, bok choy. They're enormous scallions is all I'm saying. But they're very, very cute. I was delighted to discover that Yes, We Have No Bananas has not one, but two different answer songs. Oh no, which I did not write down. One of them is called... I've got the Yes, We Have No Bananas Blues. And the other one has, I think, a Portuguese title because it's from Brazil. Uh, but if you look in the show notes, we'll have both of them. Isn't there. the other one like, Yes, We Actually Do Have Bananas? Or oh, We yeah, Get the Bananas yeah, In Finally or something? <laughs> right, but it's uh, but it's in Portuguese. Right. Is the No Bananas Blues as peppy as this, or is it an actual blues song? No, it's an actual blues song. Uh, I want to say it was an Eddie Cantor number. I'll have to look it up. So I don't think we've mentioned that this episode has a big old disclaimer on it uh, on Disney Plus. Um, Not one of the little, like, this episode contains depictions of smoking, um, but a gigantic, you know, Pinocchio, Dumbo, Song of the South disclaimer. Song of the South is not on Disney Plus, not really. Um, That you cannot skip for, like, 12 seconds, you know, that says uh, this episode contains, you know, cultural depictions that have aged poorly. We haven't cut them. Instead, we're just going to make you watch this disclaimer, even if it's the third time you're watching this episode. uh, Or you can watch the countdown clock that says your episode will start in 11 seconds. You don't actually have to read it. Um, Imagine if like the third time it's like, what kind of racist are you? Why do you keep watching? (laughs) Um, I just wanted to see some singing scallions. Did we have one of these in season one? Did did Pachalafica have one of these? Pachalafica. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't remember if it had, if it had the thing, but but of course they don't tell you why, right? They don't want to draw your attention to the thing. Um, I was thinking that'd be a good trivia round. Where we name the episode that has the disclaimer, and the contestant would have to name why the disclaimer was but there. But it's not entirely clear. Well, so yeah, so Pachalafica was very obvious. Um, we we have a good idea, and and we we I've Googled it. Um, amazingly, when you Google it, like the the suggested searches, I was not the only one to have questioned this. In this episode, there are multiple possibilities, which is funny question mark um i don't think this is it but this was one of my theories because marvin suggs is um is speaking spanish kinda yeah it was on my list i made a list this was on it yeah i enjoy marvin suggs but this is it's not it's not ideal So I, I'd made a joke about uh, the, the last number appearing in the UK spot at a certain point, and it, it doesn't appear in the UK spot. It just appears at the end.
that goes on for a long time. You know what it does. Like. So yeah, so it's it's dueling banjos, and uh, Steve Martin is uh, playing his banjo along with uh, the jug band. <laughs> And yeah, the, this was made famous in Deliverance uh, in 1972. It was written by Arthur Guitar Boogie Smith in 1954, uh, known as Guitar Boogie uh, because uh, A, because he wrote a song uh, by that title, but B, because there was another Arthur Smith in country music called Fiddlin' Arthur Smith. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you don't want to get him confused. And it was used without his permission in Deliverance and he wasn't credited, so he sued. And uh, he got a cash settlement, but he didn't want his name on the movie because he found it offensive. And because of Deliverance, it got as high as number two in 1973, but it never cracked the top spot uh, because it was being held with an iron grip by Roberta Flax killing me softly with his song. It's important that we point out that this is not the Gogolala Jubilee jug band, but rather a new jug band, Lubbock Lou and his jug huggers. It is an important distinction. And this is their first appearance and they will continue on for the rest of the show uh, into season five and appear in both Rocky Mountain Holiday and The Great Muppet Caper. My notes say, Steve Martin and a jug band? How did we get so lucky? But then I have to say, I found this delightful. <laughs> I like this jug band better than... Well, but it's also band. not like... It's not really a jug band number. I mean, it's... And I don't... Right. Like, I'm never going to sit and listen to Julian Banjos, like, by choice. But I I actually found this extremely charming. Um, and I like that it becomes, like, the whole gang ends up performing, including... Like everybody we've seen on the entire episode, I really like it. Yeah, there's that little call and response that we got to hear where the fazoobs join in and the singing food joins in. And then even the cannonball act that we'll talk about later, they get into it. There is a really weird close-up shot of Steve Martin, who is very much actually playing the banjo extremely well. And also one of the Muppet, either banjo or guitar players, hands like in the same shot which uh, uh, obviously it, it's a puppet not actually playing a stringed instrument but it's it's just weird to see them like right next to each other like that and and i just found an odd choice never mind that jazz listen turkey what and get out of show business so we do have a few sketches to talk about several of which are performed by steve martin who insists on going on stage in the middle of auditions he shows up on stage in front of a, a backdrop that i actually love i would love to have that as wallpaper but yeah here he is yeah but uh you don't have to do this because we canceled the show oh well uh maybe i could just you know perform for the guys yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. okay well listen if you, if you want him you got him uh, take it away steve thank you thank you very much thank you i realize a lot of you folks are sitting out there saying to yourselves sure he's great but can he make Balloon animals. Okay. It's a weird little bit. It it goes on for a bit too long. And I should note when Steve Martin suggests that he could just perform for the guys, there is one lady in the audience of Muppets and she's cuddled up with the newsman. I don't know what's going on there. But Steve Martin does a bunch of balloon shtick, sometimes bothering to inflate the balloons and sometimes not, which in itself is this weird trolling move to pull on his audience it's it can be funny in the right light it culminates in this long walk to a joke about how he steals baby balloons from their parents and then a giant balloon attacks him and carries him away this like many of the other sketches that steve does is based on something he did in his regular stand-up act 
And he actually started doing balloon animals when he worked at Disneyland, and he was mentored in his balloon animal act by Wally Bogue, who was not only a Disney legend for his role in the Golden Horseshoe Review, but also a Muppet Show guest star in season five. A lot of Muppet Show connections this episode of The Muppet Show. Yeah. This is like, I, I don't like this. I don't like the stand-up he's doing, but I really like like the interaction with the Muppets feels so natural and fun. Like I, I, I fully believe that these are a group of performers just hanging out and doing shtick for each other. And that's the thing I love about this episode. So Fazia has been sweating about uh, what if Kermit finds somebody who's funnier than he is. And then we find that Baskerville the Hound is auditioning for a comedy spot. It's very healthy to see what other people in your field are doing. Mm-hmm. It's an enriching experience. Yeah. Hey, Scooter, what's next? Oh, it's a guy named Lenny the Lizard. He's an MC. What the hey? Thank you, thank you, thank you, and welcome again to another edition of The Muppet Show. Well, we've got a great show for you tonight, starring the incredible and amazingly talented me, plus other good things. Next! (laughs) It was really interesting to see how another MC works. (laughs) Yeah, you really must feel enriched, Kermit. I love the line, plus other good things. It seems like they meant to fill in that line later with something more specific, and then they just never wrote it. I just love this because it feels like Jerry Nelson making fun of Frank and then Richard Hunt making fun of Jim as much as it is about these characters making fun of characters. Yeah, it does seem like we're getting a sense of the relationships between all of the performers here. So the UK spot here is Gonzo trying to tell Kermit about his new act. It's a sketch rather than a song or a comedy sketch. It's Kermit being really rather short with Gonzo. Well, look, at least let me tell you about the act. No. Scooter! I'm going to tell you anyway. I won't listen. Dancing cheese. Dancing cheese? You were listening. <laughs> Will somebody find Scooter? Oh, Kermit, she's a great dancer. She? It's, it's a female cheese? Of course it's a female! You don't expect me to dance with a male, do you? Uh, uh, no, no. That would look weird. Uh, yes, yes. I'm sure that would look weird, Gonzo. Okay. Yep. Scooter then introduces Gonzalez and Yolanda. Don't let that throw you. We've already seen the dancing rats, but here Yolanda is the name of the cheese. And she's wearing a cute little comb while she does her flamenco act with Gonzo. Gonzo is also yelling in fake Spanish saying El Toro Burrito San Diego. And maybe that was the reason for the disclaimer. It's on my list. I like this act. I would have hired. I do like, I like how lo-fi it is. Like the cheese is just like on a string being yanked around. (laughs) Yeah. Gonzo's legs are still too short. I mean, yes. And also he doesn't need to be yelling in fake Spanish, but it's a fun dancing cheese. Yeah. And the gender essentialism is, um, is not, is not cute. I mean, yeah, that's, he is yelling in real He's Spanish. He's just not right. saying He's anything. Yelling actual words. <laughs> um, and yeah, the gender essentialism is disappointing. It's a lot of no homo from Gonzo. but It feels a little protest too much, uh, yeah. if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and I do like how dismissive, I mean, Kermit's dismissive of, of everything that Gonzo says in this scene, but like he seems extra dismissive of that. <laughs> yeah. Which I appreciate. He's really extra rude. Except for me, it felt like 
Kermit was dismissive of the idea that you could romance cheese at all, regardless of the cheese's gender, perhaps even dismissive of the idea that the cheese could have gender, which given that we've, I think at this point, already seen the singing vegetables, that just seemed like Kermit, do you, you pay attention to what's going on around me? We know very well he does not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He has met some of the animated food who performs on his show. True. I'd hired that act. So we've got another Steve Martin act. He's doing his rambling guy thing. He is playing a banjo, but mostly he's just looking smug for several minutes. Okay, let's not waste any more time. Let's go. Hey. How much was it to get in? Three. Okay, you're going to get your money's worth on this. (laughs) I refuse to clip the quote-unquote song because I will not listen to it again. (laughs) If anyone really wants to hear it, it's also the opening track of his first comedy album, Let's Get Small. Does he, Co- quote, the quote-unquote comedy. Not quote this unquote, exact so. performance. Uh-huh. On the album, it's not with the Muppets. It's with the real comedy audience, but it is the same bits. Like, he does all of the things, including the thing that maybe is what got mm-hmm. this the warning. So that's also on the album? Yep. Uh-huh. My first viewing of this episode, when he says, now in Chinese, and I thought, Oh, cool. He's learned some Chinese. And then in the second viewing, I thought, oh, I need to add this to the list because this is probably fake Chinese. And that's, yeah. Yeah. And this is the internet's consensus is that the part where Steve Martin sings, question mark, in fake Chinese is the reason for the disclaimer. That makes sense. Man, it, it's not great when it's, uh, <laughs> it's no good. No, it's no good. It, it it's goes a toss up. It, 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 but it also, like, there's also like no reason for it. Like at least. Like, at least the Flying Zucchini Brothers are a thing. Like, he just literally says, now in Chinese, and then does yeah. fake Chinese. Like, there's no joke there. Even yeah, and it's well, so in, in his actual act, the joke is that he's trying to do audience participation, right? So first it's like, okay, everyone whistle along with this song that they haven't learned yet. And then it's like, now in Chinese, because, like, obviously they don't know. Oh. Yeah. But it doesn't work in the context of a staged Muppet Show act. Right. Yeah. I wasn't right. getting that. Yeah. yeah I if I were in the audience and he was trying to make me whistle and then make me sing Chinese. Yeah. Okay. Right. This song that also has no melody really at all. That, okay. Yeah. Well, if you have to explain the joke, then. <laughs> and and by the way, now that we've mentioned there. this album a couple of times, I should just fully disclaim that the album is very much of its time. It also has all sorts of other kinds of offensive humor that would not fly today. So, uh, uh, I am not actually recommending that anyone go out and listen to his early comedy albums. Well, there you have it. You heard it here first. <laughs> he also does a juggling act. Steve Martin juggles oranges, um, and he's not too shabby at it until he accidentally steps on one and then laments in that uh, goofy voice that he's killed it. And, uh, well, at least then it's over. He steps on it because Fozzie, he tosses it to Fozzie, and Fozzie tosses it back and misses. And so it's a little bit, you know, the, the orange juice is on Fozzie's hands too. The blood orange juice. <laughs> I mean, I hate to think of orange juice on the stage. It Sounds probably dangerous. wasn't a real orange. I, it, well, it looked like a real orange. It, it looked, looked like, like he had actually stepped on an orange. It's interesting. Right. This whole shtick of his from the balloon animals to the juggling, like I guess I never really appreciated before that so much of, his early comedy was about taking like really hokey standbys of like vaudevillian comedy and just 
doing them was sort of like the ironic sneer of the seventies and that somehow made it okay again to do. I don't know. It's, it's both very much of its time and also something I could picture happening in like a burlesque show in Brooklyn. Right. It's so kitschy, but it seemed to really hit at the time, but it's exactly the type of humor that I really resent when it seems like the performer is just trying to make me angry for no reason. Yeah. Anyway, we've got a human cannonball act. Also on my list of potential reasons for the disclaimer are the Flying Zucchini Brothers. If we can do fake Swedish, can we do fake Italian? I mean, it's funny. It's a bunch of Muppets running around and yelling that they've put their brother in a feet of first and they need to, or they put him in a head of first and now they need to put him in a feet of first and then it go, doesn't go off and there's no booma booma and until, until it suddenly works and they manage to light the cannon, it makes a booma booma. Did, did you all know that the Flying Zucchini Brothers are recurring characters who show up Yes. A lot more times? Yeah. yeah. Yep. I somehow had missed that. They're even a Muppets Most Wanted, which I have watched recently. <laughs> yes, they were a childhood favorite, actually. Huh. Yeah. So they're more like, if they're coming back, they're maybe more like the a boomerang act than a... There is a bit, there is there is now a panel of the wall next to Statler and Waldorf's box that, that can be replaced to have a hole in it. Since the Crazy Harry sketch a couple episodes ago that we didn't like. So I guess they're um, making the most of it. Yep, that's that's. I assume that will come back many more times. It is a super obvious. Edit. It is a very obvious <laughs> <laughs> edit in which the camera moves in between the cuts. But yeah, the, the zucchini brother goes through the through the wall there, and they fire him again during the finale. Steve Martin and all the Muppets, while they're playing dueling banjos, they have to duck because the zucchini brother goes zooming over their heads again and out through the back door. Yeah, <laughs> never to be heard from again. What a way to go. <laughs> That's a super weird shot too, because they don't, they can't actually fire him through the back door. So he just kind of disappears. Yeah. There's no sound of any impact. Yeah. It just just keeps going. It's just like, oh, he's out of view behind somebody who stood, who ducked and then stood up and he's gone. Oh, well. For one brief moment, there was light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, I guess we are at the end of the tunnel, aren't we? (laughs) We did it. Does anyone have final thoughts on this episode? I... Uh, the closing credits are also not the regular closing credits because that wouldn't make sense. And Steve Martin is playing his banjo along with the theme, which I also really enjoyed. I did not notice that. <laughs> I didn't it's, it's, either. It's mixed, it's mixed down pretty low, but it, you can hear it and you can see that he's definitely doing it for real. Neat. Nice touch. Well, that was different. Yep. Lousy, but different. Hey, everyone. Doing a rare after-the-fact little add-in clip just to let you know that this week I... I'm joined by friend of the podcast, Tough Pigs writer extraordinaire Anthony Strand on a new Tough Pigs podcast called Hubbawa, where we compete in a Muppet Show-themed game show. So if that sounds like something that you want to listen to, and I hope it does, please go look for Hubbawa wherever you get your podcasts, and we will include a link in the show notes and on all of our social media. Maybe not all of our social media. We'll include a link on our Twitter. Thanks for listening to Muppeturgy. We'll be back in two weeks after Thanksgiving with James Jackson to discuss the Madeline Kahn episode of The Muppet Show. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus, and this episode was edited by me, David Levy. So, Mary Louise. And friend. 
and friend. This is the the younger Mary Louise because there are two Muppets named Mary Louise. This is Mary Louise of I'm in love with a big blue frog. The frog that she has with her here, the titular friend, <laughs> is not the big blue frog. So did they break up? Is this her new boyfriend? Is she a fetishist? Does she only date frogs? I mean, they say very clearly this frog is a friend. Well, yeah, but is that like, you know, when my grandmother wants to introduce me and my partner to one of her friends? Is that <laughs> That's not true. My grandmother died long before I came out. <laughs> I don't know what to say to any of this. <laughs> <laughs> 